The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. Satabo Besta and his partner in crime are in court today, but virtually there have been concerns about their safety. Uh, we're going to be bringing you details on what has come out of the session this morning. But first, let's listen to the lawyer who raised concerns about the safety of Tabo Besta and his partner. It's a procedure. According to who? AVR, AVR, audiovisual remand link. It's it's there, it's prescribed. It was introduced long ago, by the way. It's been a system that is part of the criminal justice system. And um, there are reasons why such system is in place. Part of which is to curtail costs you know to uh, you know avoid unnecessary movement from prison facilities to courts there's a myriad of, of factors that really you know were taken to to, to come up with an a, a, an efficient system such as avr so all that we're doing it there is a court actually a dedicated court which does avr uh, matters daily this but nothing to do with that. I've, I, like I said, it's 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 more of a normal procedure. You know, it's a normal procedure. It, there's nothing untoward regarding this procedure, and there were never any security concerns. Um, yeah. It's all right. Let's bring in our reporter Oren Singh, who has been there all morning. Oren, good afternoon to you. How was that message received, and how's that played out today so far? Good afternoon, Jane. Yeah, um, I think, you know, the fact that they both appeared virtually, whether it's due to their safety or not, it's not really, um, you know, being something that the state has brought brought up. Um, we're not sure if it was merely logistical concerns over, you know, having to bring Tabo Besta from Pretoria all the way to Bloemfontein, which is approximately a five-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, and so for just a short postponement, it was, it was merely a brief uh, appearance for both Dr. Nandipa and Tabo Best, who appeared virtually, um, and the matter was postponed to the 20th of June for further investigations. Now, Dr. Nandipa Magadumana's father, Zolile Sekeleni, he's present, present in court this morning. Um, as you recall, Jane, he's the only one who, who has been awarded bail in the form of 10,000 rands. So he's appeared uh, in court this morning. He's currently in court with the five former G4S employees. As you would recall, they, they um, uh, went along in an attempt for bail last week, and that matter had been set down by the court for Thursday and Friday. But it was just not enough time for the court to deal with all five bail applications and uh, to wrap up the matter. So the court had last week postponed their bail application to today, and we see that their defense teams this morning, or this afternoon rather, will um, cross-examine the state witness. Last week, we had reported that a state witness was called to testify in court regarding each role each of the five former G4S employees played in the escape of Tabo Best. And that state witness is a member of organized crime and an investigating officer in this case. So he brought about some details pertaining to each of the accused and what role they played in Best's escape. Their defense teams will this afternoon cross-examine that state witness. The magistrate is expected to give his verdict 
on whether they would be granted bail or not. Okay. And I mean, you know, every time you mention the couple's name, every story that we put out there, it just trends, isn't it? I mean, there's just been such fascination around this case. It's one that's going to go on for a long time. But tell us about the presence there and and the feeling in the court and, and surrounding the court. Yeah, Jane, it's been, it's, I think the presence outside court has dwindled quite a bit since, you know, the initial appearance of Tabo Besta and uh, Dr. Nandipa Magadumana, as well as their co-accused. Um, if you recall, they, they initially appeared, you know, last month, early last month. And at that stage, there was quite, you know, um, quite a staunch um, supporter base here um, in terms of the family and friends of Katlejo Bereng. And that is the young man whose body was found burnt in Tabo's best cell, at cell 35 at the Mangaung Correctional Facility. And uh, since then, we haven't seen much of a supporter base during last week's appearance uh, and this week. Um, things have quietened down at the Bloemfontein Magistrates Court, as it would, um, moving on into the case. And, um, and I think that there's more eyes probably glued to screens and ears to radios uh, across the country. Okay, Aaron Singh, let's leave it there and we'll touch base with you when more details come out about the case. Tabo Besta and Dr. Nandipa appearing in court, but virtually, and it's been postponed. The Midday Report. Faden Tutu Zelo Nene, he's in our Cape Town studio. Good to have you with us. I'm intrigued to hear what Gift of the Givers was saying. Should we start off, first of all, with the Eastern Cape and the floods there? Um, good afternoon, Jane. Um, yes, uh, Dr. Imtia Suleiman from the founder of the Gift of the Givers um, gave an update on a few missions that they are involved in, including the floods in uh, the Eastern Cape in Kabecha, to be uh, uh, specific. And he says they, you know, they've evacuated um, more than 1,500 people, and they're helping, you know, uh, the local government. Um, with providing with uh, uh, blankets and and food for those people um, who've been displaced by the floods there um, over the weekend, um, yeah, and also he he did touch on the um, the Sudan, the South Africans who are still trapped in Sudan, and with the um, South African paramedic who's still in hostage in in Mali. All right, tell us what they said about what's happening in Sudan. I see today that the capital has suffered from more airstrikes. I mean, we're already two months into this conflict. Um, Dr. Imtiyo Suleiman um, told us that um, there are six South Africans currently in Sudan, uh, but three of them have voluntarily uh, chosen to stay behind and and monitor the situation. The other three are trying to get out. Um, about three weeks ago, one of the South Africans and a Kenyan national were attacked on a farm. Uh, so they are currently in hiding at the moment, and they are trying to mm. get out. Um, one of the South Africans is in... Uh, um, part of Sudan um, is about to land in South Africa uh, probably tomorrow, according to, to, to Dr. Imtia Suleiman. So uh, the situation there is that they're still trying to get out to get the South Africans out of Sudan, the ones who have chosen to, uh, um, to leave the, the, the conflict-stricken region. All right. And what about the South African hostage, Gurkha von, uh, von Deventer, rather, in Mali? Um. 
his situation is um, they saying the negotiations to get him out um, at a crucial stage right now. Um, he has been in captivity for more than five years now following his kidnapping in Libya in 2017. Um, he was then sold to an Al-Qaeda group and has since been moved to Mali um, where he's currently being held captive. So Suleiman says the hostage negotiator is back in Mali, having returned to South Africa last week for further consultations and to share some sensitive information with them. So they're hoping that the talks will, you know, will be successful because they're saying um, they're hoping and praying that this is, um, you know, that everything goes well because this is the final trip. And if they don't get it right, then they will be stuck because they're saying that the issue here is um, is, is is money because they bought him from another group now they want their money back so to speak mm. and and returning to the floods in eastern cape very briefly i should imagine that as always they need as much help as they can yes they do um you know people who want to to help uh, are welcome to help in in any shape or form um you know because those people really really need help uh, at this time okay and Tutuzelo, thank you the midday report so let's talk about a briefing from the Eastern Cape Department of Education. We believe it's going to be on the mid-year exams, plans for infrastructure rollout. And what, of course, we know is that the state of schools and the state of education there is in dire straits. Pit latrines is an issue, as well as a feeding scandal, where millions of kids who rely on that daily meal at school were not getting it. Let's bring in Sipa Kema from Eyewitness News. What did you hear about this? What have we learned so far? Afternoon, Jane. Well, a number of issues, as you've mentioned as well, uh, that were mentioned by the NEC of Education, Fundilikate. But of course, uh, what we can take away from that briefing were the three main issues that constantly face the Department of Education in this province. Uh, the first one, of course, is looking at the scholar transport and issues with, um, you know, learners finding themselves stranded where they can't cross uh, bridges to get to school, where, uh, you know, there's rivers that they have to cross. So to try and minimize that, and as well as the travel and the cost of the travel scholar, the Department of Education in the Eastern Cape has now introduced boarding facilities uh, for most rural schools and schools that are far out, um, especially with those with the lack of infrastructure, uh, as I mentioned, the roads and the bridges. Uh, they're also planning to phase out the smaller schools uh, in the rural areas and, uh, you know, put them part of a larger boarding school uh, within these facilities. And now we do believe, and I was told by the NEC, that uh, the project has started. Money has already been dispersed out uh, to Guha to start building at those schools. Six of these schools have already been identified as part of the pilot project uh, for this infrastructure rollout. Now, of course, the, one of the biggest issues that faces uh, the Eastern Cape is ablution facilities and sanitation in schools. Mm. We know that we hear of young children dying in pit latrines almost every year. Uh, so we ask them, what is happening with the school latrines? Now, there should be some form of plan already with the department. Uh, they were telling us that there is a project that they call Safe Program, uh, which is run between the Eastern Cape Department as well as the national government, where more than 200 schools are currently in the plan, and they're trying to pull in all the strength in ensuring that they provide uh, for these schools to build them proper 
uh, ablution facilities and sanitations within the school. Uh, they're hoping to fast track as they've learned from uh, the previous issues that they've had surrounding that and of course the unfortunate deaths of children. And of course the biggest one that we saw last week was the school nutrition program where thousands of schools, and I'm talking about 5,000 schools, uh, were left without school and thousands of learners were left hungry. Uh, now the department says the reason for this was the shifting days of transferring the money because of the verification process. Now, the verification process is to make sure that each child is accounted for. Uh, They want to make sure that they don't disperse funds for ghost learners. I mean, we've seen issues like that in in, in the past with schools in the Eastern Cape where there's ghost learners uh, receiving um, benefits that are meant for children. Um, they also said that um, when I asked them about uh, what was said before when we spoke to the department regarding misuse of funds and overspending, uh, the DDG in the department said um, it, it does not look like there was misuse. However, uh, going forward, they do plan on uh, making unannounced visits so that they can also try and find out that are these schools misusing funds because the tranche that was sent in in December was meant to last for a quarter, meaning right up until the end of April. Siba, you know, you hear all of this and the fact that it's, you know, in the spotlight again. I've done couple of stories in the Eastern Cape focusing on schools. And I mean, the situation there is dire, right? I mean, so many of them have pit latrines still. Many schools don't even have toilets. You just wonder how this talk is going to be actioned and, and how the department is to be held accountable. Oh, definitely, Jane. I mean, this is the time when we have to make sure that, uh, you know, we keep book and we keep the department accountable for everything that they say. Because you look at the budget that they received for this year, the 2023 financial budget, the Department of Education has received well over 50 percent of the entire provincial budget. That's the same that had occurred. They received about 40% of the entire budget last financial season. Now, we know that there's also funds that they returned back. And most importantly, includes that infrastructure, the much-needed infrastructure. What is going to happen for what we need? How is the department going to make sure that they spend the required funds so they don't return money to Treasury? Because this, these are funds that are needed by, uh, you know, a lot of schools across this province, as you mentioned, Jane, that, uh, you know, the lack of school buildings, pit latrines, it, it's a huge crisis, ongoing crisis in the Eastern Cape. And the DDG, uh, Tembani Mkida, did say that uh, they've got a new approach and plan this year that will help ensure that the department is able to spend the needed funds on infrastructure. Now, what we needed to hear from that were the steps and the plans in there, a breakdown of the plans, because this is something that we've heard uh, in the previous years as well, so that we get a, a much better understanding of what is the plan, what is different this in with this plan than the previous plans that they've had as a department. All right, so let's keep an eye on them. Sipa, Kemmer, thanks for that update. The Midday Report. Stats SA has released their quarterly labor survey, and I'm going to be talking to Statistician General Risenga Maloleka. A very good afternoon to you. A good afternoon to you, and uh, how are you? <laughs> very well, thank you. And uh, I'm wondering how you were feeling after you saw the figures today. Well, I don't uh, have any feelings. The Statistician General 
never has feelings <laughs> in terms of the numbers that we are we are we are releasing. It's, we just it's probably uh, a good thing in a job like yours, right? Could be yeah, a, a yeah, little yeah. depressing. Tell us about the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate, firstly, is that we have seen increases in terms of the unemployed as well as those that are employed. Mm. We have seen an increase in the employed by 258,000 and the increase in the unemployed by 179,000. That has actually brought us uh, to an unemployment rate of uh, 32.9% which has increased by uh, 0.2 of a percentage point from the previous quarter. Okay, and, and tell us about the formal and informal sectors and how it played out there. Generally, the formal sector tends to hire a lot more people than any other sector, than the informal sector, than agriculture and private households. It has actually been leading with uh, about 69, 70% of the number of the employed all the time. Mm. This time slightly in the excess of 11 million. And what about the industries? I mean, how is this playing out within the industries? Which ones are you seeing fare a lot better than you might have thought? Let us look at uh, finance and real estate, which was the biggest contributor in relation to the number of those that are employed, uh, the contribution was 184,000. And in terms of the number of those that uh, uh, are employed in the community and social services, we have uh, 175,000. We have 27,000 in the area of agriculture. These are the sectors that have contributed the most in terms of employment. Whereas uh, other sectors like private households have lost employment, 85,000, that is the highest, mm. followed by trade and mining, but they could not offset the increase of the 258,000. Yes, I mean, we saw massive job losses when it comes to mining, as you said, construction and manufacturing. Uh, certainly, manufacturing lost two million. Uh, I mean, two thousand jobs, eleven thousand in construction, uh, twenty-four thousand in mining, twenty-eight thousand in trade. Mm. So, what do we do with this information now? What what should be, what should the focus be? Two things that okay. One is that we make this information available equally to everyone in the nation. Having said so, it means policymakers in terms of those that are in the space of uh, a government in whatever level of government, national, provincial, and a local government, do use these numbers. Captains of industry use this information for knowing where jobs have been lost and where jobs have been created quarter on quarter. But also for scholarly uh, uh, expansions in our country, researchers and scholars use this information. But also it uh, helps uh, the public and those that uh, are elected into office to hold each other accountable. I mean, you know what concerns me, and, and it's no surprise, is how vulnerable the youths remain in the labor market. True, yes. Uh, the unemployment rate of young people 
it's actually sitting at 62.1%, those aged 15 to 24 years. Those aged 25 to 34 years, it's 40.7%. Uh, however, those aged 15 to 24 years, there are 10.2 million of those in the country. Out of those, 3.7 million are not in employment, education, or training. And that translates into 36.1%. And when it comes to our provinces, I mean, we have the usual. Gauteng up, Limpopo up, interesting, Eastern Cape, but uh, employment losses recorded in Pumalanga, Northwest and the Free State. Generally, rural provinces do struggle a bit with issues of uh, uh, employment uh, 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 but in this case, we can see how they raised 80,000 jobs, uh, 71,000 from Limpopo, Western Cape, 62,000. But uh, in terms of uh, employment, uh, when you look at rural provinces, Western Cape and Gauteng do not uh, uh, struggle as much as the rural provinces because the people are, uh, in rural provinces are far away from employment centers. Okay, uh, looking ahead for the next quarter, what do you, in a nutshell, what, what do you think we're looking at? We will measure and we will come back and inform. We do not speculate until the numbers are, are out. That is why we make them available equally to everyone else. Fair enough. Risenga Moleleka, very good to have you on the show. Thank you. The Midday Report. So we know that El Nino, that weather phenomenon, is heading our way. Reports are that it will be brutal, that will bring scorching heat. To find out more about what that means for us and the rest of the world, let's talk to Ed Stoddard, journalist at Business Maverick. Good afternoon to you, Ed. Yeah, good afternoon to you too, Jane. What are we looking at here, talking of this El Nino? Why the deep concern? Hi, well, the, the deep concern is because it looks like an El Nino now is clearly forming. Um, it's a weather pattern that begins off the west coast of South America in the tropical waters of the Pacific. And it typically, it, it, it brings lots of rain to some parts of the world. But in southern Africa, it, it typically brings drought. And the one that we had here in 2014 to 2016 uh, uh, triggered uh, record droughts, actually. Um, and so it's, it's of a major concern for water supplies here, and it's a major concern, obviously, for the agricultural sector. Is this one likely to be worse? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a billion-dollar question, I suppose. But it seems that the, the indications are that, that the, prospect, the prospect of it being worse um, is certainly very large mm-hmm. because the, the ocean temperatures globally reached their second highest level um, ever in April, and April was also the warmest month ever in the Southern Hemisphere. So certainly the scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at NASA in California are saying that if it's going to be an El Nino, it's bound, it's, it looks like it could be a real honker. Mm. So we've seen a lot of rain of late. I mean, again, last night, thunderstorms, uh, and I'm in Johannesburg, uh, quite extraordinary and beautiful, but not right for this time of the year. Is that a precursor to what's coming? Uh, I'm not exactly sure about that, but what I do know is that the South African Weather Service last month 
It has a monthly forecast that looks five months ahead. And it had predicted that the autumn and winter would see wetter than usual uh, weather in the eastern part of the country, which I guess probably would include Hauteng and Johannesburg, and drier conditions, um, you know, in the western and northern Cape. So, and that seems to be, uh, you know, that is happening now. But we are between the kind of what they call La Nina phase and El Nino phase. Um, So it could certainly be a consequence of, of, of that. So we, we've seen this, the impact that it had in Cape Town, for example, and the water restrictions there and, and the lack of water. What have we learned from that that might put us in a better position this time? Well, I, I suppose um, a couple of things would be one is to, to make sure that, uh, that, that the water infrastructure is adequate because a lot of water is simply lost anyway to leakages uh, and pipes bursting and things like that. Um, and I suppose it's to monitor dam levels closely. Um, it's an, it, obviously it would be an ecological concern, but I suppose some people might suggest that South Africa should um, build more dams, even for such eventualities. Mm. I mean, other than Cape Town, what does it mean for us here if it brings in this sort of extreme drought in so many areas? Again, we're just not prepared for what we're experiencing at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, too, is, uh, so, for example, if you look at the maize crop in South Africa, um, my understanding is that about 18% of that is irrigated. Um, so most of it is rain-fed. Um, so we could see a very significant um, decrease in, in the maize crop, which the past three years has been, uh, we've had bumper crops. Um, and that would have implications for food inflation at a time when food inflation is, is Economists hope it should be cooling. You know, food inflation right now is at 14-year highs. We have a serious cost of living crisis. An economy that's barely growing, if it is growing, an unemployment rate that's rising. That's as I just put, put out that it, it rose to 32.9% in the first quarter of this year from 32.7% in the fourth quarter of last year. Mm. So against that backdrop, you don't want to have um, rising food prices again. Um, and at the same time, you know, a threat like that could also impact economic growth, which is already burdened uh, by load shedding and things like that. Yeah, and if we think it's bad for us here, I believe places like India are are preparing for the worst. I mean, it'll be more than devastating there. Yeah, yeah, I, I suppose I'm not exactly sure what El Nino's impact is in in India, um, but it's certainly, you know, for, for Southern Africa. So it won't just be South Africa. This will be a concern in Zimbabwe, you know, Malawi, uh, where most of the population uh, is rural and involved in subsistence rain-fed farming. And so that will mean, um, uh, you know, uh, more food aid going uh, to countries like that and things like that and, and situations like that. Okay. And uh, lastly, Ed, any idea how long we'll be in its grip? It's usually a year or two. I suppose it could be extended to three years. The La Nina phase that we were in now uh, was longer than usual, and that brings right, good rains here, right, which it, which it did. Yeah. And that was about three years in length, I believe. Mm. So it's, it's hard to say. And I suppose right now it's kind of like 80, 90% chance. I suppose there's a slight chance, 
uh, that they might not form a weak intelligence. But all indications right now are that it's on track to form. And, you know, this is coming from, you know, NASA and its jet propulsion laboratory. And, uh, you know, the scientists there are pretty smart. Mm. It's relentless, isn't it? This weather of ours and uh, the, the the sort of the elements and uh, politics and everything that South Africa is going through at the moment. So let's hope it does does maybe miss us. Ed Stoddard, journalist at Business Maverick. Good to talk to you. Thank you. The midday report. All right, we've got quite a few comments on the mayor's actions yesterday, and. Um, so I was wondering if we could play that voice note. If not, let's just listen to what Kanani uh, said to some of those he was targeting yesterday as he, the, uh, the mayor for one day, targeted dilapidated buildings and those in it in Johannesburg. I expect in this building, because of the spirit of Ubuntu, we are not uh, <laughs> evicting today, but we are giving warnings. Because it's raining, it's cold, we don't want to put people on the street. We will come back and put them on the street because they would have known that they are staying in unsafe and healthy buildings. Salute! Apologies for the sound quality there. Alpha Ramashwana uh, was there watching what was happening yesterday. And Alpha, before we talk about the impact of what you saw yesterday, I want to know about what this means for us going forward now. So the new mayor steps in, Cabello Guamanda. He was away. He was in Cape Town. And that's why Kenny Kunene was on the job yesterday. Is he going to continue with this type of action? Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jane. Yes, like you said, uh, the executive mayor, Cabello Guamanda, was out on official business to Cape Town for two days. And he just came back today. And yesterday we did see the acting mayor, Ken Kunene, uh, issuing eviction warnings to some of the residents in, 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 in buildings that are dilapidated in the city of Johannesburg. Now, his, his time as acting mayor ended last night. Cabello uh, Guamanda is back on the streets today doing his job as official mayor. So the question that we posed to Mr. Kunene yesterday was that, will he be continuing with this program even if he's not uh, uh, um, the mayor? which he isn't the mayor today, but he wasn't able to answer that question because he's back to being the MNC of transport today. And we do know that in his capacity in that portfolio, he can't, he doesn't have the right or the mandate to issue out eviction warnings and uh, 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 evict some residents who are living in dilapidated buildings or hijacked buildings. So this only means that uh, this program will not continue unless the MNC for public safety or even, you know, the executive mayor, Cabello uh, Guamanda, decides to continue this program himself. And as you can imagine, after something like this, you know, two sides to the story, two sides when it comes to response. Many people were outraged. It felt like uh, cheap sort of politics uh, attacking the weakest. And many people have supported his actions. But I, I want to know what people said who were affected yesterday. What sort of things did they tell you? Well, Mandy, the people who are affected are people who are staying in buildings that are hijacked, meaning they are essentially paying less for what they could have been paying uh, if the building was being rented out lawfully. Now, one of the people who I managed to speak to yesterday was telling me that she earns a basic salary for about uh, less than 3,500 rand. And she was saying that she can't afford to get a decent place to go stay with her family. Now, just to take you through what the, the, the kind of room she was staying in, it was a unit where there's actually three families who were staying there. And she was telling us that she doesn't have a choice but to stay there because it's 
you know, what she can afford. So it does seem like those who are affected mostly are people who are unable to uh, 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 go get a better place to stay at. So they just chose a, a hijacked building where essentially they pay less and they pay it to a person who who, who then decides if they want to pay the services, the city for the services rendered or not. But there were also some of the people uh, who lived in neighboring flats and neighboring resident, uh, uh, areas who were quite happy that these people are about to get evicted. What they did mention, uh, Jane, is that the people who are staying in some of those hijacked buildings are letting crime go on in some of those buildings under their watch. And it is something that has been affecting Hilton for quite some time. So there are two uh, sides to this coin. On the other half, some are happy. On the other half, those who are affected are not happy. And they're just hoping that the city will give them alternative uh, accommodations. Mm. And other than the buildings, I mean, quite a few things were found which raised concern, including cables and all of those type of things that uh, are leading to the uh, crumbling of Johannesburg. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, In one of the buildings, which is in Windsor East in Johannesburg, they found uh, copper cables stashed in, in buckets and boxes. And when asked where they got those cables from, they were unable to answer as to where they got those cables from. Now, the question that comes to mind is that are these copper cables stolen? Because we do know that uh, the sale of copper cables is becoming a problem now in the city of Johannesburg, where scrapyards are now, you know, taking these copper cables for sale without questioning where they, where exactly they come from. So some of the copper cables that were found were brand new. They were still... Uh, box they have they hadn't been opened yet and some of them you could see that uh, these ones have already been in use so the, they, they found a bunch of copper cables there but what they also found in another building uh it, it, it was beds they turned a, a building into a, manuf- a furniture manufacturing uh factory of some sort where they elicit that they produce illicit furniture, if I can put it that way. That's also another thing that they found. And also those people, when asked where exactly, uh, who exactly they sell these to, they were unable to answer the question. Thank you very much for that. I suspect we're going to be seeing more of that type of action that seems to be popular in some camps. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. Latest news, breaking stories, expert analysis. All you need to know in 60 minutes. This is the Midday Report.